They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff, like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. On this episode, I talked to John Abumrai about his podcast series, Unerased. He also hosts some other podcasts, you know, like Radio Lab and More Perfect. But he joined me specifically to talk about this series, which I was fascinated by, which is all about conversion therapy in America. There's this wave of legislation that's happening right now. 10, 11 states have outlawed conversion therapy. I think the person who's leading it is Trump, frankly. You know, like just, it's all a backlash to Trump. And I'm joined by... Brittany Clinton, Sam, as always. Brittany's recording is a little separate this time because we were just all in different places across the world. Now, before we begin, at the time of recording, I'm in South Africa. I just came back from the Apartheid Museum. And one of the things that struck me in the museum, there's so many things to see, was just how intentional racism, white supremacy has been both at home and, and across the globe. And that denying the intentionality, the structure, and the planning that went into making it as potent as it's been really is misunderstanding the work. And I left being more mindful that the solutions have to be intentional and thoughtful and planned, that we won't undo these things that people worked very hard to make concrete without planning them. So let's go, a lot to talk about. Hey y'all, it's Brittany Packnett at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. I wasn't able to join the fellas during their conversation, but I did want to bring a really important piece of news forward. This past week, the Brookings Institute partnered with Gallup to release an important study about the effects of implicit bias in housing and the racial wealth gap. People like my friend Andre Perry authored this report, and what they discovered is disappointing, but probably not surprising. Their study revealed that homes in majority black neighborhoods are undervalued by an average of $48,000. That means that if you took a home in a majority black neighborhood and looked at an identical home in a majority white neighborhood and you adjusted for structural and neighborhood characteristics, that the black home would be valued at almost $50,000 less than the white home. Why does that matter? Well, when it's time to get insurance, when it's time to get a second mortgage, when it's time to sell your home, that valuation will determine if you actually get a bang for your buck. New York Magazine recently reported on these discoveries, and they included some research by Demos, which we've talked about on the pod before. Demos discovered some important things in relationship to this home valuation gap. They discovered that 73% of white households actually own their home. In contrast, only 45% of black households actually own their own home. They also found a racial gap in home equities. There's an $86,000 median home equity in white households and only $50,000 median in black households. These kind of discrepancies, when you add them to the kind of discrepancies in neighborhood values, are explained by generational bias, implicit and explicit, and the kind of redlining, segregation, restrictive housing covenants that we have talked about before, exactly what that has led to. Here's what Brookings had to say about the outcomes of those kinds of gaps. They said if properties in black neighborhoods were priced equally as those in white neighborhoods, black children coming of age in the 1990s and 2000s would have had much more wealth to draw upon to pay for things like private schooling, tutoring, travel, and educational experiences, as well as higher education and greater access to higher scoring schools in the suburbs. They wanted to be careful that this is a correlation and not a causation, but they wanted to highlight the fact that when racial wealth gaps exist like this, especially given the fact that how Housing was so essential to building wealth for so many white middle class families that it is much, much, much more difficult to actually bootstrap your way up out of poverty. We often talk on the pod about how living in low income circumstances is not a moral judgment and it never should be. Studies like these and others show us that it is in fact the policy rooted in racism of this country that has led to these outcomes. It's the news. This is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. Your voice isn't the same as Brittany's, but I'll accept it for now. 
This is Clint Smith at Clint Smith the Third. I I I, and this is Dre at Dre D I Y on Twitter. Brittany, we miss you. We love you. Yes, we miss Brittany, and hope she is feeling better. She's feeling a bit under the weather, but uh, Dre, you've been uh, crisscrossing the globe, and you are several hours ahead of us right now. Where are you at? I went to South Africa. I went to Global Citizen and saw B and J and Pharrell and so many other incredible artists. And um, it's a long flight, Clint. It's it'll be sixteen hours for me to come <laughs> home, which is oh yeah, that's a long time on a plane. How do you spend your time? I don't know. I think I actually need advice. Like, what do you? Do you? Do you have like a trick? I love reading on long flights. I mean, it's just there's so few times now where you're disconnected. I don't like ordering the internet on flights because I like feeling disconnected. I like being able to have my attention mm. sustained on on a book for like a long time. But usually I do like I have a book and then watch a movie. And uh, whenever I I'm not traveling with my toddler, it feels like this huge luxury. And so I'm just like, oh my gosh, like the possibilities are endless. Like whatever whatever it takes to survive, that's what you got to do. Speaking of survival, it's interesting to watch as the new congressionally elected uh, representatives make their way to Congress. And what's interesting, I don't know how I thought survival was a, a good segue. I mean, I was thinking like the survivor, but, you know, <laughs> we were talking a little bit about how, how interesting it is to watch Congresswoman elect Ocasio-Cortez navigate her entrance into congressional life. And one of the things that I think is so fascinating is to watch the way that she has created a different level of intimacy and social proximity to what is happening in the sort of onboarding process of what it means to become a congressperson in a way that I don't think we've ever experienced before. I mean, like if you watch her Instagram stories, you are watching like, how do they pick their rooms? And like, how do they elect certain party leadership? And how do they, I mean, it's, it's really a, a, an incredible civics lesson from someone who is the same age as us and, and brings a different perspective and a different mixture of like thoughtfulness and levity to, uh, to the table. So I'm, I'm deeply appreciative of the Congresswoman elect and, and I hope she keeps it going. I, I like, I'm learning a lot and, uh, and it's cool to see. It's incredible to see the ways in which particularly younger members of Congress are changing the ways in which Congress communicates with the public, with, with constituents, you know, and I think Congresswoman-elect Ocasio-Cortez is a great example of that. And it's a reminder that, you know, this will be the first time, starting in January, will be the first time ever that millennials of color are represented at all in Congress. I'm fascinated and curious to see how that changes the debate, not only in Congress, but also changes the ways in which uh, Congress relates, particularly to, to younger people of color, to people that have been left out and shut out of the process and never really been represented in the way that, that I'm hopeful that we might be represented next year. Yeah. You know, I, I do think that in some ways, uh, Cory Booker was sort of a model for that intimacy. Like, Clint, I, I think you probably remember, I certainly remember, like, Cory, like, tweeting Mm, that's true. digging that's people's true. cars out of the snow you know what I mean like that was so different right, to all right. of us and we haven't really seen anything since then that was like that felt authentic I think that we saw a lot of people like where their PR team clearly was like please use Twitter right but she's like on Instagram like asking for crockpot recipes you know on Twitter asking for crockpot yeah. recipes and you're like that's dope and she at the same time is like you know I just I just chose my health insurance plan and like this really is a scam and I do think this, you know, we had on the pod and, you know, Sam, you were there and I'll never forget meeting her because it was like, you know, we obviously loved you online and you are the real deal. Like, I'm like happy to support, like to ride, do whatever we can, because it's not it's not often that you find somebody who like actually just walks the walk and like talks the talk. And I was impressed. So I'm excited to see what what this Congress is able to do. It'll be interesting too to see what the committees turn out to be. Like, if she gets a committee in the environment that she's been pushing for, like, if that happens or, like, what Pelosi does with the, the younger members who just, like, are coming in in a different context with a different purpose, uh, I'm, like, fascinated to see how that actually will turn out. Don't go anywhere. More Politic the People's coming. Brittany, I can't even tell you how good the Fully stuff is. I thought that the standing desks were like all hype before. I'm like, those people need to sit down. Like, why are they standing <laughs> up just to try and be on the cutting edge? It's just like, you know what people just do too much in the workplace? And, mm -hmm. and the standing desk was one of those too much things. 
I got this fully desk and I'm I'm sold. I'm, everybody needs one. The only reason that my book is a book is because of the fully desk. Like what is cool about it too is that it's adjustable. I'm I'm sold on the desk. I like am more focused than I've ever been at a normal desk. That's dope. I know you really love the desk, and so does everyone else. For four years now, the wire cutter has named Fully's Jarvis standing desk the best standing desk on the market. And I'm like you, I was a doubter before, but I think I'm really into this idea. So our I work, a ton of people have standing desks. Sometimes they're like the bootleg standing desk where you really went and found a box and you put your computer on top of it or something like that. But the secret is that these are not really just about standing. They're about movement. Fully standing desk and collection of active chairs give you the freedom to sit, stand, stretch, squat, perch, do a full yoga workout, and lean yourself into healthy, comfortable positions that work for your body's unique and changing needs. Because, you know, sitting at that desk all day can actually be really painful and it's definitely not good for the fitness goals so listen to your body and like you know let it flow it's true like again i was not sold until i got one myself and the thing about it is that if i want to sit at normal desk height i can i can lower the desk if i need to stand up i can press a little button the desk goes up the chair is a cool chair that it comes with it's just like really incredible because it allows me to focus in a way that the normal desk doesn't fully keeps your body moving so you can feel more alive and engage in your work and in your life with the perfect mix of modern design and healthy movement. You're in more natural positions and you feel better after working. You're not all stiff and uncomfortable. I didn't even know I was stiff and uncomfortable until I got <laughs> this desk and I was like, "Ooh, where I've been. And listen, also, all that sitting definitely has negative health effects. Fully has helped people discover freedom in the workplace with, honestly, iconic pieces like the Jarvis standing desk, the Capsico chair, the Topo mat. And Fully wants to make an active work life available to as many people as possible. So their pieces are always affordable. The customer service is dope. So get your body moving in your workspace. Go to Fully.com slash people. That's F-U-L-L-Y dot com slash people. Fully. Desk chairs and things to keep you moving. Pew, pew, pew. So as so many of us know, The New Yorker is an iconic magazine that represents the best writing in America today. Beyond publishing talented writers like Doreen St. Felix, Vincent Cunningham, Gio Tolentino, they hold people in power accountable through rigorous reporting and compelling storytelling. So for example, Sarah Stillman's piece on people who are killed after being deported from the United States. I've recommended it to every single person I can. I think it is really emblematic of The New Yorker's ability to create work that is deeply reported, incredibly rigorous, artfully done, incredible prose, and also just like deeply human and full of empathy. So there are so many stories like that in the magazine, and it includes everything from politics to climate change to popular culture to business to cartoons. There's really something for everybody. And what Clint won't say is that he also writes in The New Yorker frequently. One of the reasons that I like The New Yorker is that it doesn't only feature these voices that we've seen like for decades. It also features uh, newer voices and has a fresh perspective. And every time I read The New Yorker, I'm looking for people like Clint. Uh, I love Clint's writing and I obviously love Clint. And uh, I'm always impressed with like the takes and like the way that The New Yorker like uses this platform to push forward in a different way. I also appreciate The New Yorker gets you interested in topics that you would never find fascinating, like paper jams, fault lines, heirloom beans, and stink bugs. Plus, NewYorker.com publishes 15 to 20 news stories each day that aren't available in the print magazine. I'm always excited when there's a new article from New Yorker writers and contributors like Ronan Farrow, who's written breaking news on Harvey Weinstein, Gloria Allred, who has a review on the literature about millennials, or Hilton Alls, a theater critic who won the 2017 Pulitzer Prize for Criticism. So don't wait one more second. Go to newyorker.com slash save the people. That's newyorker.com slash save the people. Listeners of Pod Save the People save 50% half off when they enter the code save the people. With this special offer, you'll receive 12 issues for just $6. Plus, get the exclusive New Yorker tote bag. You can choose between print, digital, or a combo for your subscription. Subscribe to The New Yorker and read something that means something. That's 12 issues for $6 and a free tote bag when you go to newyorker.com slash save the people. My news is about immigration. So this past week, the New York State Supreme Court decided on a 5-2 decision that non-citizens are entitled to jury trials for deportable offenses under the Sixth Amendment, which guarantees the right to a trial by jury. 
Now, this is important because in New York and seven other states, plus the District of Columbia, if you are facing less than six months in jail, you don't have the right to a trial by jury. You actually have your case decided by a single judge. And that's because of legislation that was passed in the 1970s and 80s that was intended to make it easier to quickly process people through the criminal justice system as prison populations were rapidly increasing under the current era of modern mass incarceration. And what the courts are doing now is they are beginning to recognize that for immigrants in particular, the burden of facing less than six months in jail for a conviction is actually much higher because that also, in many cases, can subject you to deportation. So not only are you facing you know, this sentence, but you could also be sort of permanently separated from your family and taken out of the United States based on a conviction for lower level crimes like prostitution and harassment that no longer allow you to actually go to a jury, uh, but have your case heard by a single judge. And so this is probably going to end up at the U.S. Supreme Court. But I, I wanted to bring that to the conversation because I think uh, it was new to me uh, that actually in eight states you don't have a right to trial by jury if you are facing less than six months in prison. And it's also interesting that you know the courts are beginning to recognize that for immigrants in particular, there is a differential burden associated with a conviction of less than six months in many cases because that subjects you to deportation. It makes me think about the Sarah Stillman article in The New Yorker several months ago where she documented and profiled people who lived in the United States and were seeking asylum here and then were deported back to their home countries and were killed. And this is a phenomenon that's like difficult to specifically enumerate, uh, and, and it's difficult to get a specific sense of how many people exactly have been killed, because we have the numbers of people who are deported after living here for many years, but we don't have a lot of data on people who maybe came here looking for asylum and were denied and were sent back and then killed in that way. And what we know is that people who are deported are an incredibly vulnerable population once they get back to their home countries and they become prey to to criminal groups who who you kidnap them and hold them for ransom until their relatives in the U.S. Uh, are pressured to pay for their release. And so we see time and time again that deportation is not simply sending someone back to their home country or it is not in the sense that it is an inconvenience. Uh, rather, it is existential. It is something that is literally a life or death scenario for many people. And it's impossible for us to know how many people have actually been killed or, or even seriously harmed by being sent back to a country that sometimes they, they don't often even know very well. It also made me think about when we think about immigration, especially with this administration, is, you know, he talks so much about like MS-13 and gangs and like this idea that immigrants are criminals and, and this whole thing, which we know the data actually doesn't bear out. But it made me think about like why the conversation is always about arrests and never about convictions, because what the administration is doing is that they are saying that people are in gangs and they are saying that people are criminals before they've actually been convicted of committing like any crime or the crime that they've been said to have done. And they're just being deported on like, quote, being here illegally. And the administration is actually sidestepping like any proof that people have committed wrongdoing or like. That is one of the things that this brought up to me is that the way we think about like the words we use about what it means to be involved in the criminal justice system, uh, what it means to be convicted, those sort of things is that like the the common ideas like by jury your peers and like six months is still a pretty long time to be in jail. And like if you go to jail for that as like your first offense, then that can create like a lifetime of other offenses that just like make it much easier for you to be incarcerated later. And I just never knew that like a judge a judge solely could just do that. Like that was, that blew my mind. For my news, I'm talking about how North Carolina's State Board of Elections has, again, and they've done this repeatedly, decided not to certify Republican Mark Harris's victory uh, over a Democrat, Dan McCready, in the 9th Congressional District in North Carolina. So the story is that Harris won by 905 votes, but the validity of mail-in absentee ballots from in and around what I believe is pronounced Bladen County have been called into question. On Friday, the Associated Press retracted its call of a winner in the race. And what's interesting, and, and these are the numbers that are really striking, is that in Bladen, Harris won 61% of the votes from mail-in ballots, even though registered Republicans accounted for only 19% of the county's accepted absentee ballots. And it's the only county in the district in which Harris won mail-in ballots at all. And across the 9th District, which stretches from Charlotte to Fayetteville along North Carolina's southern border, 24% of the requested mail-in ballots were unreturned. 
In Robeson County, 64% of mail-in ballots requested did not make it back to election officials at all. And in Bladen County, this figure was 40%. The unreturned ballots are disproportionately associated with minority voters, with more than 40% of ballots requested by African Americans and more than 60% of those requested by American Indians not making it back to election officials. For white voters, that figure was just 17%. So more than 40% of African American voters, 60% of American Indians, whereas only 17% weren't returned from white voters. So there's some suspicion of foul play Additionally, in Bladen County, the breakdown for African Americans and American Indians generally reflects the district-wide figures. Uh, In Robeson County, 75% of mail-in ballots requested by African Americans and 69% of mail-in ballots requested by American Indians were listed as unreturned. So in these two counties, essentially, you had a bunch of people requesting mail-in ballots that were not ultimately returned. And and some anecdotes that have been shared in local reporting uh, from the area So one voter said that a young woman came to her house and asked for her absentee ballot because she was collecting them. And the voter had made her choice for only two of the offices on the ballot, but still gave the ballot over to the young woman who said, oh, don't worry, I'll fill out the rest. Another voter said that a woman came to her house and claimed that she was responsible for collecting absentee ballots, which, mind you, this is not how that works. And the voter filled out her ballot while the young woman waited. The woman then took the ballot but never asked the voter to sign it and did not put it in any sealed envelope, both of which are necessary for absentee ballots. So so the presumption, as you can probably tell, is that there are people who were associated with Harris's campaign who may have been going to predominantly minority neighborhoods and essentially stealing people's absentee ballots to prevent them from sending it in. So we'll see what happens with this election and what the state board of elections has to say and and it's, there is always the possibility that the state board of elections could call for uh, a new election if they find that there were electoral fraud uh, which is ironic because they always think that electoral fraud is happening on the left but this is an example of the opposite yeah i mean this is fascinating for for a couple of reasons i think the first is that based on these what are often unfounded suspicions of sort of in-person voter fraud or voter impersonation, Uh, we saw the same state, North Carolina, pass a voter ID amendment that is projected to disenfranchise 281,000 people in the state uh, at the ballot in the same election as a major case of election fraud was happening, uh, but it was happening via absentee ballots, right? And, And oftentimes when we think about these voter ID laws and these other attempts to suppress the vote, they actually don't involve absentee ballots. They are targeting folks who show up to vote in person uh, and require you to present, you know, a photo ID and, and other, you know, proof of citizenship and all these other types of documentation. But what we see here happening appears to be a case of absentee ballot fraud. And I think that has to be a part of this conversation. And it's particularly interesting when we see, you know, on the Republican side of things, you know, Republican officials doing this. And this wasn't the first time that similar uh, irregularities have been found in that county. This actually went back, this affected the primary. Um, there's evidence that this goes all the way back to 2016. And so you know, something's going on there that needs to be investigated. Uh, and it's definitely something that, you know, none of these sort of strict voter ID laws that are being passed that are actually creating substantial burdens for people of color to voting. None of those things would actually impact this. Uh, this is something that uh, the state will have to investigate and, and deal with and hold folks accountable. Uh, and, and to that point, you know, as you mentioned, Clint, I actually wasn't aware that the State Board of Elections was able to call for a new election. Uh, and looking at the statute, it's fascinating the language of the statute because it says that the State Board may order a new election upon agreement of at least five of its members in the case of any one or more of the following. And then there's a number of conditions, one of which is that eligible voters sufficient in number to change the outcome of the election were improperly prevented from voting. So, like, I didn't even know that they had the authority to say, if we, based on, I don't know what the evidentiary requirements are, can show that enough voters were prevented from voting, that it would have changed the outcome of the election, that we can hold another election. And I'm just wondering, are these statutes more widespread? How many states have these? For example, does Georgia have this? And if so, I mean, you could make a pretty compelling case that enough eligible voters were prevented from voting in places like Georgia and Florida that it affected the outcome of the election. Uh, And I'm wondering, you know, whether that avenue is being pursued, uh, whether these types of laws are also in place in those states, um, because that could be a potential uh, avenue to address voter suppression. 
The only thing I'll add is is that one of the things that's most striking about this is that the board voted 7-2 to not certify the results. So this is not a straight vote down party lines. There are two of the Republican members of the board are actually in alignment with the Democrats and saying like, this actually just doesn't make sense. And I think that that is actually really powerful in the context of this, because like Clint said, it's like a little bit over 900 votes that is what decided this race. For so many people, this election was the first election that they understood like voter suppression in real time. I think that people heard it before, just like people heard about voter ID and they were like, that's bad. And people had heard about voter suppression, but they were like, I don't really know what that looks like. And then we saw it happen all across the country. Like you still see it happening in some places where um, you think about places like Wisconsin is that you see the Republicans like working overtime to make like another election, to make like all these things that they know will just benefit them if turnout is low. And I'm interested to see like how we organize around that in 2020. Like what does it mean to have like poll judges and poll workers organized? Are we paying attention to who gets appointed to the boards of elections and things like that? Like how early in advance do polling sites get announced? Like these are all the questions that I'm starting to think about now that I just wasn't thinking about before. Like when do polling sites get chosen? You know what I mean? Like that is like a legitimate question that we should be thinking about now so that we're not scrambling like two months before the election in 2020. And I'm hopeful that like we will start to organize around that in mass uh, as we lead up to the next election to create a foundation that is just unshakable uh, as we move forward. Uh, my news is it's about a group called After Innocence. It's a nonprofit group that is devoted specifically to helping people who are wrongfully convicted rebuild their lives. And one of the things they do is help people take advantage of the Wrongful Conviction Tax Relief Act which is applicable to people in 33 states and who were wrongfully convicted by the federal government. And what it does is that it excludes from taxes, civil damages, restitution, or other financial awards that exonerees have received through lawsuits, settlements, special state awards, or through state compensation. And, you know, the challenge, though, is that there's so many people who were wrongfully convicted who got settlements who don't know anything about, like they just don't know the act is an act. So there's a group like working with people who are exonerated to make sure that they're informed about how they get their life back together once they were exonerated, that they didn't commit the crime, that they were in prison for years and like it wasn't actually something that they did. And it made me think about, and you know, Sam has talked about this before on the pod that like when we think about even giving formerly incarcerated people the right to vote back, like it's one thing to legally give them the right to vote back. It's another thing to make sure they know and that they're informed that they can vote again and that they can actually like that some places they have to take advantage of the paperwork or, you know, Clint, we talked about people who are getting their records expunged and like what it means that there's so many people who like don't even know that they have something on their record and they have to go through this process to get it expunged and they don't really know what the process looks like or the process is financially prohibitive. And like, this just made me think about, I had no clue that there was like a wrongful conviction tax relief act that, and that like, you're right. How would people know how to take advantage of it? And I wanted to bring that here to talk about like another way uh, that access to the system actually really changes, like who can access opportunity. I don't think I fully considered the extent to which so many people who have been wrongfully convicted received absolutely no compensation at all. And so according to the Innocence Project, up to 40% of people who are released from prison after being wrongfully convicted receive no compensation. I can't imagine being sentenced and convicted and spending years in prison and then having the court or the state say, actually, we were wrong, our bad, and then sending you back out into the world with nothing. With absolutely nothing. And I th I'm thinking about all the formerly incarcerated and exonerated people who end up on the street, who end up in homeless shelters, who whose lives have been completely taken away and they have no economic stability at all, much less, you know, being compensated for for the years and years and years that they they spent in prison. And, and that was infuriating in a way that I I didn't even for something that I wasn't even cognizant of. Uh, and there are multiple states in which this happens. And even in states that do offer compensation, many of them impose limits that essentially make it meaningless. For New Hampshire, for example, caps compensation at $20,000. Imagine spending years in prison and, you know, 40% of you get nothing. But even those of you 
who are offered some have have a cap on how much you should you should get. The Innocence Project recommends that people should get at least fifty thousand dollars for every year they were incarcerated, but that is far from the case that happens across the board. So this angered me in a way that I don't get angry sort of viscerally angry in in a way that I did after reading this. Yeah, DeRay, this article reminded me that, you know, not only do we have to be paying attention to the ways in which the state imposes sort of explicit barriers on people's lives, right? Access to opportunity, access to healthcare, access to, to freedom, right? Not being incarcerated, but also the ways in which the state intentionally doesn't tell people things, right? Doesn't tell people that you have access to tax benefits if you've been wrongfully incarcerated. It doesn't tell people that it's open enrollment season to enroll in the Affordable Care Act right now until December 15th. And as a consequence, we see enrollment down 10%, right? And, and all of those things play an important and significant role in preventing people from accessing benefits that they're entitled to. Uh, and that, you know, in thinking about the role of organizations and activists and influencers and public officials to make sure that people are aware of these things, even when the state uh, is intentionally keeping that knowledge from people. I think that has to be a part of the strategy, just making sure that people are informed because you know the state will work intentionally to prevent people from even having access to that basic information. That's the news. Don't go anywhere. More Politics the People's coming. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, They sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. 
If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot people. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. And now my conversation with Jad Abumrad, the host of several podcasts, including More Perfect and Radiolab, who's with me to talk about conversion therapy in his latest series, Unerased. Jad, thanks for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thanks for having me. So, you know, one of the things in listening to the podcast that I realized was how much I actually didn't know at all about conversion therapy. Like, how did you come to care about it enough to do so much work around it? Like, how have you changed in the process? Yeah, wow. I started where you just said you started because I didn't know it happened. You know, like it, it sounded like when you when you hear about conversion therapy, it sounds like some weird thing that should have been sort of phased out in the Middle Ages. And just to define it, what it is, is all kinds of different things. It's something that could happen in a church or it could happen in a therapist's office. But like anyone who tries to basically take a gay person and turn them straight, like through prayer, through some sort of like pseudoscientific techniques. And... um I think the the moment that I kind of got hooked and wanted to really dive into it was when I realized just how much it happens. Like the Gallup organization does this like roaming telephone survey. One of the questions they asked was, do you identify as LGBTQ? And then some folks at UCLA did a follow-up with the people that said yes and asked them, have you gone through something like conversion therapy? And I think the ultimate number was something like 700,000 people what? who are alive today have gone through something like this. Wow. And it, and you would think it would just be old people, people of older right, generations, right, right. but actually uh, the proportion of young people and old people was, was constant. So what that tells you is it's this thing that's happening kind of under the radar in different parts of the country in different ways. And when I realized that, I was just like, what, what, what is this? Where did it come from? What's the history of it? And uh, and that ended up being this four-part series, just looking at sort of the context around it. If somebody said to you, like, a day at conversion therapy is, like, how would you answer that? Well, I'll sort of channel Garrett Conley's memoir here, which was really the sort of catalyst for the whole series, because we, we did this series in conjunction with the movie Boy Raced, which is based on the book Boy Raced, which was a book he wrote about spending two weeks in a conversion therapy, like really the biggest conversion therapy program in Memphis. And a day there was just a composited, you wake up, you have quiet Bible study for an hour. You have like a seminar with a guy who teaches you how to stand, how to talk, how to walk. Then you have a whole bunch of like pseudo psychotherapy group talk sessions that are sort of like AA, but kind of more new agey even, where there's a lot of confessions and a lot of like hyper detailed dissecting of sexual experiences, you know, in the same way that you might like hear someone at AA talk about like this time when they slipped up and they had a drink, that kind of thing. Then you you might have a moment where you do some kind of like gestalt-ish kind of therapy thing where you do like an empty chair technique where like I, I look at an empty chair and I imagine my father in there. Like what do I want to say to my father? There's a lot of that kind of stuff. And then throughout it, you're escorted everywhere. You can't be with another person by yourself. So there's like it's a lot of like monitoring. In this particular program, there are places in Memphis you can't go. Mm. A lot of these people are working and then coming to – I mean, this, this I found interesting. That I just assumed parents force people, yeah. but a lot of these folks are voluntarily committing themselves. Really? Yeah, because they're coming from places where... Is it voluntary, though, like I'm going to be shunned from my family if I don't go, which it's, is sort of not voluntary? No, it's not voluntary. I mean, it's obviously it's like the conditions within which a person would then want to go to conversion therapy are essentially forcing them. But 
they check themselves in on their own. To your second part of your question about how did it change me, I don't know that I knew this going into this project, but on the back end, I look at all of the stories we ended up telling, and each one of these stories is about somebody changing their mind in the most fundamental way, you know? Like episode two, we, we look at this collective of Christian moms. Was it hard to find the mama bears? No, I mean, these days, not so much, you know, because they're having a moment. Can you just explain what they are for the people who haven't listened So the mama bears are a group of Christian women, mothers mostly, whose kids have come out as gay or transgender. And it's a group on Facebook where they kind of come together to share stories. Uh, Not all Christian, but mostly Christian. And what's interesting about this group is, and I think it's like 3,000 people right now and growing, but they'll also do these actions, like these mama bears to the rescue sort of like Batman, like parachute into a place and help a kid out kind of actions. And we profile, actually, Shima, who's sitting over here to the left, went to North Carolina to uh, go to a wedding of two young women, one of whose families has disowned her. And so the mama bears, uh, in this case, two of them in the local area kind of came in and basically stood in as the family and like walked them down the aisle, which is super moving to think about, like these strangers suddenly become your family. And so, yeah, that's, those are the mama bears. They basically have gone from just a, a group to being like a, an activist force. The group is still kind of secret, I think. It's still sort of a private Facebook group. But uh, I don't know, any of these women, you know, you hear the stories they tell. Like they, they start out like far, far right, you know. Like that one woman was like, I was at tea party. Yeah, like, like I'm praying against the ACLU. Right. And then suddenly now she's collaborating with the ACLU. And that transition is in like a year. Were there any techniques that you saw the mama bears employ that were particularly effective? I'd want to believe that at this point, one of the ways that they're able to scale so quickly is that they have figured out how to tell stories in a way that resonate with people. Do you have like a sense of like what the pieces of the way they talk about it are that like actually are sticking with people? Okay, so like we did that we did a thing where we got in order to record that second episode, we had four different women in three different states. And we were like, we want to get a good recording, so we don't want to do a phone call. So we hired reporters in each of those places to go and sit with them while they all talked to each other on the phone. It was a massive pain in the ass. It was like just recording-wise, it was so hard, and like people kept getting dropped from the call, and it was just, and then when you put the sound into Pro Tools, syncing them up was just a nightmare. But what, it was interesting because it was through that act of will that you could feel on their part, like they were making this, because they'd all lost their churches, right? They'd all been basically booted from their churches. But it was through that act of will that they were creating a virtual church. And they all talked about it as a kind of ministry. Being here together on this conversation felt to them like standing the true power of their faith. I found that really moving. I'm not, I'm not a believer. But it was interesting to me that maybe their most profound stance is to be deeply, deeply Christian, you know? Do we know anything about their partners or their spouses? Like, did they come around, too, in the way that the women seem to have organized so both quickly and organically and and with such impact? I think on that side of the equation, it's kind of mixed. Unscientifically, from the people we met, you had cases like the leader of the Mama Bears, her husband, super supportive kind of just walking with her through that journey. But then there are as many stories we heard of people whose marriages ended, Hmm. you know? Kid comes out as gay and it ends a relationship and the mom maybe chooses the son, the dad chooses the church, you know? Hmm. We bumped into a lot of those kinds of stories, you know? In your experience, were there not as many resources for men who were trying to figure out what to do in the process? I don't know. If you you look at it from the Christian perspective, I'm, I'm no expert. We just waded into this world for six months. But based on that, I mean, the ideas that people fight to preserve that would alienate LGBTQ folks are very kind of like male-centric patriarchal ideas. And so the people that are likely going to be stakeholders in that are going to be men, you know? I mean, I think that just follows. So the men of those communities have more to lose, to be honest. More to lose in what way? To lose in terms of stature, in terms of norms, you know? when a son usually comes out. That it's like a failure of them. It's, yeah, it's like, you know, I mean, what was interesting to me is that you look at the conversion therapy programs that sort of sprung up in the Christian communities, really starting in like 73 and then really hitting like 
exponential around 95, 2000. There is much about gender as they are about sexuality. Hmm. You know, it's about teaching these young men to be more manly. Like the idea of sexuality almost doesn't enter the picture. It's more just about like, I mean, literally everything from like, here's how you hit a baseball to here's how you stand. You stand with your legs uh, apart and like all of these sort of instructions and like manly posture. But sex isn't really in the picture. What about religion? I think about the part of the episode where you weave in like the voices of the Yale Divinity School guy and like Mm -hmm. the people who like call out the hypocrisy of Leviticus and all these other things. Did you come out of that episode or or the whole four thinking about religion differently? Or did it like solidify the way you'd already thought about religion? Personally, one of the things I really wanted to know about was like what does the Bible say about being gay? I'm the product of two scientists, so like I've never gone to church. I've never. (laughs) But I've always been really interested and really curious about it. And so, yeah, there are like a couple of like sizable hunks of the series where we like go deep on the story of Job or the story of Leviticus. Sodom. Yeah, that we do a whole big sort of like cinematic recreation of that story. And I found that really interesting because, I mean, and this might sound really sort of like ordinary realization for somebody who has grown up in the church, but what you really realize is that the Bible is like a compendium. It's a, it's like all of these different stories that have been compiled over thousands of years from people of all of these different cultures, different languages. And somehow somebody like in a couple different moments in history, like just wrapped a big bow around them and said, this is the Bible. And then we very far downstream think of it as the word of God, but it really, it's just a bunch of people who gathered a bunch of stuff together. And so you look at the different stories and they contradict each other. You know, there are translation errors rife through that. One story will say one thing, but the same story comes up again and it's translated differently. That was really interesting to me that like the Bible is as complicated as the rest of the world, basically. How did you see people struggle through the complexity or did you see people just be like, well, this is what I believe, like complexity be damned? I think it's ultimately like, do you want to embrace the complexity or not? Which is, I think, true in so many places in in this current moment. But each of those women, you know, told us a story of like their kids coming out and it's like this shock, right? Because they're they're deeply embedded in this Christian community which sees homosexuality as something to that's ungodly, right? In a lot of cases, they go back to the Bible and they're like, what does the Bible actually say? And if you're interested in doing the work, you very quickly realize that the Bible's a little bit fuzzy. Like Jesus doesn't say a word about homosexuality anywhere, right? It's just not in there. He's completely silent on it. There are places in Paul where it's mentioned, but it's sort of there's like the translation is a little bit ambiguous. There are places in Leviticus, which is in the Old Testament, where it's definitely mentioned, but it's part of a whole list, which includes also like don't get tattoos, you know, don't wear clothes of different fabrics. So it's like, why are you picking out that one quote, but ignoring the others? So, you know, if you get to that place in your understanding, you're just like, hmm, the Bible, it either doesn't make the case that I should hate gay people, or it's just kind of confusing. And why am I going to cherry pick one thing and not another? And so you see a lot of these women kind of get to that place where they think, hmm, if this book that guides my life doesn't really say what I think it says, and I love my kid, maybe I need to change. What was your takeaway from being around like the people who like sort of went through, survived conversion mm-hmm. therapy, but like believed it before and now are like, that was wrong? Like, what was that like? I think about this moment in the fourth episode where we spent a lot of time talking with the guy who was really sort of the Elvis of the ex-gay movement. He ran this place called Love in Action. And he was really sort of like this cult of personality guy formerly gay and then had basically quote-unquote cured himself and then spent 25 years quote-unquote curing other people. I remember sitting with him where he's living now with his husband in Paris, Texas, and we were looking through this yearbook of the class of 93. So this was maybe, I don't know, 20 different young men, and every single one was a different outcome. One guy was still in a quote mixed orientation marriage, which means like he was an openly gay man living as a heterosexual man with a woman. Another guy was openly gay, accepted his sexuality. Uh, A third guy had died of a drug overdose. A fourth guy was working for a 
super hateful anti-gay organization as a gay man. All of these guys had gone in different directions and some of them had completely accepted their sexuality and others continue not to. And that really spun my head when we sort of looked at it. Was he sincere to you? Like for somebody to lead a space that is like yeah. literally ruined people's lives for a long time and now you're like, hey, just kidding, I'm married to a man. Yeah. I mean, it's not just ruined people's lives. I mean, arguably drove some people to suicide, more than a few people. Did you feel like there was like an honest grappling with that? I did, actually. I did. I mean, that was one of the tricky things for us. And like we spent two days with him. And in the end, what we found was a guy who's, I think, struggling with being defensive and then also struggling with trying to own up to what he's done. Because interestingly, he did it to himself, too. So it's, um, I don't know, it's confusing. If there was a fifth episode, what would it be? We had a fifth episode planned. You had a fifth, secret fifth episode. Yeah, we had stuff that fell out of the frame. I mean, and, and the only reason we didn't put it in was because we just, uh, like, we just ran out of time. Because one of the cool parts of the sort of, like, contemporary angle of all this is that there's this wave of legislation that's happening right now. Last 18 months, 10, 11 states have outlawed conversion therapy. Is there, like, one group? leading this or is this just like happening organically i think the person who's leading it is trump frankly you know like just it's all a backlash to trump and to pence i mean pence is on record as supporting some of the very christian organizations that preach conversion therapy and then there's just been this wave of activism the last 18 months that is really really heartening and i wish we could have done something about that it is interesting, too, that before I talked to you and heard the podcast, I know many people who would have been like, banning conversion therapy is cool, but it's not really happening. So it's like one of the, it's like a moral victory. Yeah. And then you're like, just kidding. Like, this actually is really still happening. You know what I mean? Totally. That like, banning it is a legitimate practical thing and not just like a moral win. Totally. And, you know, and it's like, you look at the history of it, this kind of blew my mind. The Christians only really got involved in like 1975-ish. You know, Who was doing it before? The feds. So in 1948, it was a crime to be gay. If you were caught, you were put into this place called St. Elizabeth's, which these days is decrepit, like, B-movie horror, like, falling apart mental institution that we actually walked through. But so, like, there was 48 that was, like, a crime, and then I think it was Hoover basically, like, tried to chase all gay people out of the government, and then Eisenhower basically made it a crime to be gay and be in the federal government. And all of it was sort of resting on this sense in the psychotherapeutic community, in the scientific community, that being gay was a mental illness. And then in around 1975, the science community woke up and they're like, wait a second, it's not. Let's take it out of the DSM. This is the big Bible of mental illnesses. So they took that out. And it's right at that moment where the Christians walk in because they see that the, quote, professionals are not taking it seriously. Hmm. And so suddenly the church walks in. But previous to that, it was science. It was the government. That's fascinating. Yeah, so that's like that's a part of the history that we tell in this series. Playboy. Yes, sir. Hugh Hefner. Yeah. Homosexuality. Mm-hmm. What's the what? This this was eye opening for me. My generation experienced late stage Hefner, but if you go to like early Hefner, if you look at like 1967 Hefner, he started specifically Playboy Forum, which was this thing in the beginning of the magazine where letters would go back and forth. He wanted to blow up the way we thought about sex and gender and all this kind of stuff. And like some of the first debates about homosexuality happened in Playboy magazine. How did you stumble across that? One of the episodes was looking at sort of the gay cure in science. And the character that we were looking at is this guy, Jerry Davidson, who is a behavioral therapist. And we talk about his kind of like transformation experience from trying to cure gay people to basically telling the entire community to stop doing that. And... So he invents this bizarre cure, and uh, he writes a letter to Playboy, and he's like, hey, I got this thing. So, Because a lot of gay men were writing into Playboy saying, I've got these feelings. I wish I could not have them. And he was like, hey, I've got a cure. So he writes in a letter. It starts this whole big debate in the pages. Uh, Frank Kameny, at one point, who's this very famous gay activist, writes a letter that's titled Gay is Good. And gay is good would become the sort of mantra of the gay rights movement. Hmm. So anyhow, the whole debate got started in Playboy magazine. I find it interesting when like somebody who's like the point of the spear that is the mainstream, he was that guy. He was like the point. 
because of this weird like interaction that he meets a gay activist in a conference and that guy had decided, no, I'm not going to rail against these people. I'm going to actually try and talk to them. And he has this one particular interaction that changes this guy's mind. And then that guy stands up in front of his community and basically tells them all, we have to stop. Ethically, we've got to stop. Now, I don't need to love that guy, but I think so often that's where change happens. It happens from this kind of like somehow being able to get through the thick skulls of the people who are in charge, but through empathy, you know? I don't know. So like for me, that's not always the case it happens, but I, I, I think the process phenomenologically, the way in which that change happened is interesting to me. Has he completely changed his heart? Hard to tell. You know? Yeah, and I agree with that. My only push, and we get this a lot in the work of racial justice, is that like you actually, so the police are great examples. Mm-hmm. The police are like community policing, right? And like that is predicating this idea that the police should be in community and da-da-da. And like if they're in community, they will be, make better decisions. The challenge with that is that like the root of that is this notion that like if you play football with my kid, you're going to treat him better. And like, Mm -hmm. you actually should need to know my kid's name at all to just treat him fairly. Right. Like you should need to, like it is overall good that he had this experience and this person sort of pushed him. But it's like, if change only comes because like you're in proximity to somebody you harmed Mm -hmm. and the harmed person is like, you know what? You almost killed me and my friends. Yeah. Then like, that's like not courage. It's something, but that's not like bravery. That's not bold. It's like you literally ruin these people. You like created yeah. the cover that ruined these people's lives. Totally. And totally. then you're like, well, one of them talked to me. And you're like, well, okay. You totally, know? totally. I don't think it only comes that way. I mean, what was interesting just to look at that moment where the, with Jerry Davidson, the therapist. I mean, that was also a moment where you had, they, as they were called, radical gay activists taking over conferences and like, grabbing the mics and like basically shutting things down. And so you had like very, very violent interventions, which posited the question. But what ended up happening in the therapeutic community, and you see this in a lot of places, is that things stratified. They were just like, oh, they're just being crazy. And like you had a lot of the guys who were like the stakeholders suddenly like solidify their position. And they just like, oh, those crazy gay activists. And then what I found interesting is that in that stratified world, you had a really clever gay activist named Charlie Silverstein figured out a way to kind of navigate the gap and like kind of tap on the psyche of this one guy that we profiled and pulled him to the center. And that was cool to me. Like I love, like in these moments of stratification, how do you kind of like very cleverly get your message across the gap? So for people who like didn't go to conversion therapy camp, but are like, this is wild. What can they do? You know, I mean, there's a lot of groups who are working really, really hard to sort of push this legislative wave further. There's too many to mention. So I would say, and I hope this doesn't sound self-serving, but I would go to unerasedpodcast.com. We set up that site mainly so that people could get engaged. And there's a whole bunch of resources there. The Trevor Project, Mattachine Society, a bunch of places that are working really hard on this issue. And so I would go there. I'd start there. Is there something the federal government can do too, or is this really like local and state? It's being driven by local and state municipalities. And there are a lot of people who feel like they've voted and called and protested and marched and the change they want still hasn't come about. What would you say to those people? Oh, man, I give it a minute. You know what I mean? There are all the symbolic ways that we sort of try and change the world. And then there's the way the world actually changes, which is slowly and gradually and through a kind of sustained one-on-one engagement with people who think differently. I personally am of the mind that like you have to stare difference right in the face and try and get in their head and they get in your head. And if there's enough empathy and enough imagination, things will change. It's just going to take a while. And what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? So here is a piece of advice that was once given to me that has helped me as a storyteller It's also helped me as a person that has to manage other storytellers, which is simply like you don't have to know what you're doing. When you're in the position that I'm in, people will look at you and be like, what are we doing? And it's really hard to say in that moment, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know what we're doing. But it's okay to not know. And as long as you know that you're the person that's going to lead the search party and that that simple redefinition of what my job is, I feel like I lean on that every day. And where can people go to stay attuned to what you do next? couple different places. The, you know, Unerased is at unerasedpodcast.com. I mean, they can hear Radiolab, which is the, sort of the main thing I do anytime at radiolab.org. Also, there's 
More Perfect, another show that I do, which is radiolab.org slash moreperfect. Yeah, what about you? Are you on Twitter? I'm on Twitter, Jad Abumrad at, uh, at uh, whatever you say. You know how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. Well, thanks for joining us today on Pat the People. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Explore the world's hidden wonders on the Atlas Obscura podcast, a village in India where everyone's name is a song, a boiling river in the Amazon a spacecraft cemetery in the middle of the ocean. Every day, the Atlas Obscura podcast will blow your mind in 15 minutes. You can find it on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode. Your home is your place of peace. It's clean. It's welcoming. (sighs) And it's definitely not crawling with invading insects if you use Ortho Home Defense Max. Use it indoors on non-porous surfaces to treat and prevent cockroaches, spiders, and ants for up to 12 months. So your home can stay your place of peace, your work-from-home office, and your family's headquarters. Kill bugs inside, keep bugs outside, and love your home. Visit ortho.com for more.